I hope this will not become a necessary habit, but I need to repair a couple of things I said last week. First, regarding dispensationalism, I said in response to Greg's question that I said I'd be delving into that in this session. I lied. This was to be at one time the second session, but I stuck one in before it, uh, and I forgot that. So we will get to that next week, and we will also be distributing the first charts next week. Second, let me assure you that last week Linda was correct, as she usually is. What I should have said was that the tribulation is all about Israel. She was correct in that. In that statement, that's correct. In my defense, however, I must offer some defense. Israel does indeed play an important role during the millennium, so it's both. Near the end of our session today, I will state the following. In a strict dispensational sense, any mention of the kingdom refers specifically to the reign of Christ on earth during the millennium and has Israel as its focus. And quoting this church's articles of faith, Quote, Christ will be the king of this millennial or Davidic kingdom with the nation Israel occupying an exalted position within the kingdom. Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. So, we both were right. Always a happy circumstance. Now, the kingdom narrative, I realized early on that we had to address this because that's what it's all about. The study of eschatology, the last things, is ultimately a study of the fulfillment of Christ's kingdom. If the Messiah is the recurring motif throughout God's word from Genesis to Revelation, then the gravitational flow of the Bible runs inexorably toward Christ the King, assuming his place of ultimate judgment and lordship upon his throne. That is the narrative, beginning to end. To appreciate the kingdom's importance and centrality to all of God's plan for man, as well as its overwhelming importance in the eschaton. Before we can move forward, we need to look backward to trace the development of the timeless kingdom of God, which in the end will be handed over to his Christ by the Father. The earliest reference I could find to this kingdom is in the second book of the Pentateuch. Let's turn to that. Exodus. Exodus 19. The second book of the Pentateuch in the words of God given to Moses to speak 
to Israel. So here we have kingdom beginnings. Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 to 6. Who has that? Yeah, Mike down here. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Yahweh is saying you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Regarding this, Walter C. Kaiser Jr. writes this, Israel was to be kings and priests to God on behalf of the nations. They were to be mediators of the gospel as missionaries to the nations. In your seed shall be all the nation in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Genesis 12:3b. And they were to be partakers in the present aspects and coming reality of the kingdom of God. This is the first now, not yet in this session. It's a, it's a standard motif in God's word. Whether you're in the Old Testament, the New Testament, no matter who's speaking, this now, not yet seems like every Every book of the Bible we've studied in my class, there it is again. It's always now, not yet. This is true now, and, and we run into it a lot regarding the eschaton, where God's Word says this. Well, it applies here. Yeah, it does. Historically, that, that prophecy was fulfilled in A.D. 70. But it's also fulfilled in complete fulfillment when Christ takes his throne. So now, but not yet, not completely. We run into that all the time in God's word and several times in this study. So here, God is saying, you will be my a kingdom of priests. And they were a kingdom of priests back then in the Old Testament. But they will be in the eschaton as well. We get our most important reference to the everlasting kingdom in the narrative about the first king of Israel, Saul, and his successor, David. Please turn with me to the first book of Samuel. Well, I should have given this to Greg to read. First Samuel. We're going to be going to chapter 13. From the beginning, the Lord God's plan was that he would establish an eternal kingdom. Which would be ultimately handed over to the second member of the Godhead, Christ Jesus. If he had been faithful to the Lord... Saul and his house would have inaugurated that kingdom. That was the intention. But Saul was not faithful. In disobedience to Yahweh, instead of waiting for Samuel to arrive 
to make the sacrifice before the battle, he got impatient. He says, well, Samuel must not be showing up, so I'll do it. I'll make the sacrifice. No. In the, in the Mosaic covenant, in the, in the covenants with Israel from God, there were kings and there were priests. And the two never came together. That's what sets Christ Jesus apart. That's what, that what make, that's what makes Melchizedek the most fascinating character in the Old Testament. I love Melchizedek. Patty's smiling. My eyes glow when I think of Melchizedek because he's a mysterious figure. He just bloop, plops into history. There he is. He was the king and priest of what was going to be Jerusalem. And that's what set him apart. He was a type of Christ because he was a king and a priest. But in Israel, you could not be both. And so Saul did a really bad thing. And then immediately thereafter, Samuel shows up. So he impatiently assumed the role of priest and made the offering before the Lord before battle. Immediately thereafter, Samuel shows up. 1 Samuel 13. Let's read verses 13 to 14. Who has it? And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept, the Lord, kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, don't miss that important word in verse 13, forever. Samuel is referring to the eternal messianic kingdom that would ultimately be assumed by Christ Jesus. And of course, that man after God's own heart mentioned in verse 14 was David, son of Jesse. Before anyone outside his immediate family knew anything about him, God had already appointed David to be king over Israel. Another now, not yet, by the way. No charge for this. David was anointed king. It was 20-some years later, I think. I may be wrong on the years, but it was quite some time before he actually became king. So God recognized him as king now, but not yet. Not quite. All the way. Keep your eye out. When you're reading through God's Word, keep your eyes out for those. It's fascinating. It's there throughout God's Word. Now turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and follow along with me. The Lord God is giving to the prophet Nathan instructions that he is to declare to King David. In verse 17, we have the confirmation that Nathan did just that. We're going to be reading chapter 7, beginning with verse 11b. Nathan told the king every word from Yahweh. In one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture, another now-not-yet prophecy, King David expresses his desire to build a permanent house, not a temporary portable tabernacle or tent, 
which is what the word tabernacle means, but a fixed residential structure, a permanent temple for the Lord. This was no fickle daydream, but an earnest, reverent act of devotion to build for Yahweh a permanent temple. And King David had all the right reasons to build the temple. He was, he, he was righteous. He was sincere. He was reverent. God, you don't belong in a tent. You belong in a solid structure. I want people to know who you are, how important you are, how powerful you are. But God had something else in mind. He would have his house built, not by David, but by his son Solomon. But God wanted to talk about another kind of house. Follow along with me, beginning with the end of chapter 11, verse 11. This is good stuff. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There's that word again. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Now, let me pause right there. This is not only now, not yet, but this is one person and, and another. The, these are two prophecies woven together. He's prophesying what is going to happen to Solomon. Yet this as a whole is a messianic prophecy. He's talking about Christ, the ultimate king, the permanent king. But obviously, if he's saying, I will be a father to him and he'll be a son to me when he commits iniquity, uh-oh, we're not talking about Jesus anymore, are we? And I'll correct him with the rod of men. No. Nope. So he's blending together two prophecies. One about Solomon, who deserved the rod of men, deserved God's chastisement, and Christ. Now, let me continue. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul. Correction? Yes, but I'll not leave him. Whom I removed from before you. Your house. Now, David says, I'm going to build you a house, God. God says, let me build you a house. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Great passage. With a working knowledge of human nature, we might wonder if this turned David's head. Certainly could have. Would his sons, grandsons at all, continue on ruling forever in perpetuity? Well, we don't need to wonder. Please turn to Psalm 145. Psalm 145. Who has that?
Let's begin reading at verse 10. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Seems pretty clear from that what David's state of mind was. He says, your kingdom, your power, not mine. An everlasting kingdom, your dominion endures. Not, not the house of David endures, but your kingdom, your dominion, your kingship. I think my dad would have said David's head was screwed on right. He, he understood his place in all this. Of course, he was a man after God's own heart. Perfect man? No. <laughs> Whoa, no. But he, his heart was right. Whatever King David's mental response to this declaration from the Lord, he understood that, the, that God was not referring to a mortal succession, a fleshly succession. It would indeed be a king from David's line, but the throne would not be filled by an endless succession of men. But the eternal king would be just one, the Messiah. And we need no more proof that David understood the pecking order than what he penned in Psalm 110, which begins, and for clarity's sake, I'm going to read this twice. First, I'll read it as is. Then if we stand back, stand away from me so I don't, in case I get struck by lightning, I'll stick in some extra words. First, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's 1.10 verse 1. Now, let me stick in the words. Let me replace the Lord Yahweh, God the Father. Yahweh says to my Lord, David is saying this, David is writing it. So he says, the Yahweh says to my Lord, and that word is Adonai, my Lord, my King, the one over me, my authority. Quote, God speaking, sit at my, Father God, right hand until I make your Messiah's enemies a footstool for your feet. Yahweh is speaking to the second member of the Godhead, the Messiah. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We can't know what was in David's mind, how much of what he wrote he understood when he wrote this prophecy, but he knew that he had a Lord between himself and Yahweh. That's the key to this. He says, I'm the king of Israel. Nobody tells me what to do. I can do whatever I want. But I have a Lord. I have a king that's over me who is not Yahweh. There's somebody in between. 
and that at the end of all things, that Lord would reign with unquestioned and unlimited authority. Continues in, in, chapter, in Psalm 110, the Lord is at your right hand. That's not Lord Yahweh, that's Lord Adonai. Adonai is at your right hand. This is David speaking. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. David got it. Whether he understood this prophecy or not, that's exactly what happens at Armageddon. That's exactly what happens. God's word says that the birds came and feasted on the corpses. Christ comes, opens his mouth, and speaks. And this huge army that's been gathering for years, getting ready in place, just like Putin has his arms, his army in place. He's been spending months getting them ready. This whole army is ready. We're going to fight God. We're going to take him down. Jesus shows up, says a word, boom, dead. Done. And the birds feasted on all the flesh. Now, that's look at the old, other Old Testament prophets they, who spoke of this eternal kingdom. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel. All three speak of an everlasting kingdom ruled over by, as Daniel puts it, the Most High. But the other two explicitly tie this to the Davidic covenant and the Davidic line of kingship. And all three make it clear that this ruler will be essentially synonymous with the Lord God. That's another thing you run into when you start digging into the end times, even before that, but especially then, you start asking yourself, well, wait a minute, who's being referred to here? Is this, is this Father God or is this... Son, God. Who, who is it? Let's look at Isaiah chapter 9 first. A familiar passage, especially around Christmas. Isaiah 9. Verses... 6 and 7. Who, who's got it? For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David's righteous branch, king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in a land 
In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Now, verse 5, that could be anyone, couldn't it? When I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Well, anything, any, any son, grandson, whatever, could be a righteous branch coming off of David. But would they be called the Lord our righteousness? That's the thing. That's who he's talking about. Now, finally, Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 7. Let's begin. Let's read verses 13 to 14. Who's got Daniel 7? Ah, good. I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Keep going. His dominion. That is 14. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It's kind of the punchline. <laughs> which shall not pass away. And his kind, and sorry, his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Boy, that's... Later in the same chapter, Daniel sees in the vision the fall of the beast's rule when Christ returns at the end of the tribulation, verses 26 and 27. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away. That is the beast. Annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Wow. Well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New? Please turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I've made the point before that in the eschaton, throughout God's word, but especially during the last things, the line between God the Father and God the Son is blurred. For example, in the fifteenth chapter of chap, in the fifteenth chapter of First Corinthians, Paul writes in verse twenty-four. Then comes the end, when he, that is Christ, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he that is Christ, has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Yet, in verse 27, the apostle writes this, For he, Father God, has put all things in subjection under his, that is Christ's, feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he, Father God, is accepted who put all things in subjection to him, Christ. Which follows, 
Of course. If I have the power to put all things in subjection to you, well, that means I'm not in subjection to you. That's what it's saying. Paul clarifies the relationship of the two as regards the Lord's rule over the kingdom in verse 28. When all things, all things are subjected to him, Christ, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one, God the Father, who subjected all things to him, Christ, so that God may be all in all. Clear as mud, right? So is it Christ's kingdom or the Father's kingdom? Answer, yes. Good, you're catching on. The Son is the exact representation of the Father. Hebrews 1.3 Pastor Jeremy intimated this this morning near the end of his message. In God's Word, a Son is not just someone who came from your loins, who was physically born to you. A son is someone who acts like you. That's, that's in God's word, that's how a son is seen. And, and Pastor Jeremy was saying, that if we are sons of God, if we are daughters of God, we need to act like him. Because that's what a son does. He acts like him. What the father does, the son does. Christ hands the kingdom over to the father, but the father gives it back, having the son be sovereign over all. The picture I have in my mind is a blending of verse 24 and the Daniel prophecy from chapter 7. Christ... The Son of Man, which was, by the way, his favorite way to refer to himself in the Gospels, approaches the Father's throne carrying in his arms the kingdom. Here it is. He ceremonially places it into the Father's hands, declaring, It is done. It is finished. We've, we've done it. Here it is. The Father then hands the kingdom back to the Son. Paraphrasing Daniel 7, 14, To you I have given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language would serve you. Your dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and your kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, go down and rule, be king over all. And that's just what Christ does. His throne is established on earth for a thousand years. That is the millennial kingdom. He rules over all. And beyond that, he doesn't cease being king at the end of the millennium. He continues. He is, he is ruling, king, sovereign, Forever. 
A similar blurring is going on in the Gospels in most places where we see the word kingdom. <clears throat> Turn please to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3. Let's read verses 1 to 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, a Jew hearing the, hearing the kingdom of heaven would rightly conclude, ah, he's referring to Yahweh's kingdom, of course. Don't even have to explain it. Yet by saying, at hand, John is referring to the imminent arrival of the Messiah. His kingdom. And after his temptation in the wilderness, when he learns of John's arrest, Jesus says exactly the same thing. Quote, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here I am. Matthew 4, 17. In a sense, now not yet. In a sense, Christ's kingdom, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, was realized in Bethlehem when the eschaton began. Because Christ the King was now present. He was here on earth. In another sense, Christ's kingdom is here now because his church is here. He's always been a king and we're part of his kingdom. Yet in the truest sense, the truest fulfilled sense, the kingdom is not yet here because Christ Jesus does not yet reign as he will one day. That takes, we have to chew on that for a little while. I mean, that, that's, that's something you lean back in your chair and cogitate on for a while. Because we like to think of Christ as king. He's, he's sovereign. He's our Lord. He's king. Not quite absolutely yet. Not according to the narrative that God has established from beginning to end in his word. <clears throat> God's word defines the moment when Christ will at last assume his role as true Davidic king of his kingdom as the moment he comes to earth publicly, visibly, for the second time. <clears throat> In this moment, there will be no doubt. The entire world will suddenly know that there is one king over this earth. And his name is the Son of Man, the Word of God, Christ Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Praise God. This will occur at the end of the tribulation. After seven years of hell on earth, literally, especially the three and a half years, the second half, hideous time, Christ returns. And boy, does he return. In a strict 
dispensational sense, any mention of the kingdom refers specifically to the reign of Christ on earth during the millennium and has Israel as the focus. <clears throat> we'll delve deeper into this when we study the millennium. The writers in God's Word have described this moment in a number of ways. The late great Bible teacher M.R. DeHaan succinctly writes that this return of Christ will be public, paralyzing, and punitive. That's right. It's going to hurt some a lot. All those people who thought they were getting away with murder, they're going to realize they didn't. We close with this scene as painted by John in the Revelation. Please turn and follow along with me as I read from Revelation 19. <clears throat> Beginning with verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. Not yet. And in, and in righteousness... He judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe... And on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now skip down to 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on his horse and against his army. And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And this is, this is the good part. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on his horse, sat on the horse, in other words, he spoke, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Boom. Dead. That's what a king does. An everlasting king.
Now, Bennett, did you have something? I, I can't hear. I'm sorry that I interrupted you. That's all you. right. You didn't interrupt me. You just interrupted me. I got excited. Okay, so do I. Because I know that Bible verse. <laughs> this is good stuff. Like, um, the other day, uh, a long time ago, I was sitting with Daniel, and he read that same Bible verse. Actually, Jeremy did, actually. And... Uh, Daniel looked at me and said, were you paying attention? And I was like, yes. Um, the, in Revelation, they got his robe dipped in blood. And he's like, I saw you looking over a couple of times, not paying attention. And then I said to him, that's the part. And he was like, okay, yes, you were paying attention. Mm-hmm. Was that Jesus? You bet. Anything else? Any other thoughts, questions? They're stunned. David, that passage before where it speaks of repent, we don't hear that very often anymore in today's society. Where it speaks of what? Where it speaks of repent. We don't hear that much anymore. You'll hear it out of Jeremy and Daniel, but you don't hear it very much in churches anymore. That's one of the things I'm very grateful for, that in this church, we take God's word for what it is, for what it says. There were passages in 1 Corinthians, I thought, oh, please, let me out of this, please. Why did I pick this book? Oh, my. But we looked it square in the face and discussed it. Any other thoughts? Yes, Greg. The other Greg. Uh, it's true, is it not, that the those that are left in the kingdom at the time of the of Armageddon will still be there observing the that final battle, and that the those of us that have died ahead of time and presumably been raptured into heaven, will be back with him observing as well. Uh, <clears throat> yes. The church returns with Christ at his second coming. And with Israel plays a role in that millennium. Some say the millennium is, they spiritualize it and say, uh, it's not literally 1,000 years. Okay, fine. Uh, I take it at its word. 1,000 years. So what? To God? It's a walk in the park. Anything else? 
quickly. Okay. I remember Greg telling me to be like letting other people talk. Is that your question? No. Just do it, honey. You have a question? I do have a question about, you were talking about um, uh, in uh, Matthew, um, about um, he coming back. Tell you what, Bennett, Bennett, I'll come talk to you and answer that for you. Why don't you get squared away let's let everybody else go and that i i learned a i learned a great thing i was thing. talking about daniel yeah i'll i'll answer that for you but let's let everybody else go i remember i, I learned from pastor that daniel has a thing he says to the youth that's an eleven thirty one question i do have one question that you might be able to close on just uh -oh. real quick uh-oh uh first peter mentions that we're a royal priesthood how do you how, where does that fit into your scope of the kingdom? Oh, sure. Quick, quick. Yeah. Give me a break. That's, yeah, you come after Bennett. Good grief. We're already after time. <laughs> Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for opening your word to us. We do not take it lightly. It is a gift. It is a privilege to read your word, to study it, to learn from it, and to, be in, to have it translated for us by your Spirit. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this gift. We pray that you will be glorified in it all. In Jesus' name, amen.